Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. All right, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. The last, yeah, we're finishing Genesis 50. And then we're closing the church. It's been great. Um, Just so everyone knows, because everyone's been asking me, we're not going straight to Exodus. That that won't be the next step. Um, I think we're going to hit up Leviticus and Numbers, um, just to keep things interesting. Um, All right, just to recap, um, in chapter 49, Jacob gives blessings uh, to his children, and then he uh, dies. said in verse 33, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to all his people. And then in verse 1, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So this is a very emotional scene. Uh, maybe if you've lost someone close to you, you understand Joseph's great sadness if he were there when they passed. But even in this sadness, even in this awful moment, right, there is evidence of the goodness of God. There's evidence of the goodness of God. It can be really difficult to see the goodness of God when we're in the midst of pain, when we are in the midst of suffering, right? But nevertheless, it's there, and sometimes we have to look back later to realize it was there. Um, in, in fact, Joseph might not even realize what is happening, but as Jacob is dying, I know that he cannot help but think of the promise that God made to him in Genesis 46:4, when God said to Jacob, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Jacob was very nervous about going to Egypt and he sought God and God tells him, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And here we are as Jacob is dying, even in his final moments, one more promise of God fulfilled. One more promise of God fulfilled. And I bet Jacob just looked up at his son Joseph and thought, God is so good. He kept this promise to me. He kept his promise. And in the grand scheme of things, Jacob had to think, because in these moments when God does things like this, you have to think, man, God, this is, this, in the grand scheme of things, this isn't very important. And I could see if it wasn't important to you, but you, God, you knew that it was important to me. And so you did this thing, this extravagant thing for me. You knew the desires of my heart and you granted them. And I think it was just as much a blessing to Joseph that he was able to be present to say goodbye to his father because the last time they parted, he did not get to say goodbye and he did not see him for years and years and years. And I wonder if it hit Joseph as he was the one to close his father's eyes, God, you are so good. If both of these men in this moment thought, God, You are so good. You keep your promises. And after Joseph gathers himself, it says he ordered the physicians to embalm his father. Um, Embalming, um, I don't know if anyone's, does anyone know about embalming? 
done it recently. Um, embalming was very expensive, very tedious Egyptian method that consisted, I know everyone's interested, what is embalming? Well, I'm going to tell you. Okay, it consists of removing the brain, the, yeah, yeah, the lungs, and the abdominal organs. I actually have a picture, if you could, I'm just kidding. Who said no? Someone was like, no. Um, uh, so they would take out the abdominal organs, the lungs, and the brains. I'll say that again in case you missed it. Um, then they would fill the body with expensive uh, spices, and it would be soaked in this type of sea salt and wrapped in linen bandages and covered with gum, most likely myrrh, and placed in a wooden case, um, what we would call a coffin. And just to be clear, this is not a Hebrew method of burial. This is like entirely Egyptian. I think it's most likely that Jacob had to be embalmed this way because they were going to have to take his body on a very long and hot journey through the desert to the burial location. And I think it'd be much more difficult on the nostrils had they done it any other way. So it then tells us that the process of embalming takes 40 days, and then you add on a 30-day period of mourning for the Hebrews, and that adds up to the 70 days that they mourn for him while in Egypt. And some people say that it would have to soak a little bit, the body, that is, would have to soak a little bit more in that sea salt for a total of 70 days. Uh, but, the, but the Hebrews mourn for him 30 days. Um, and while usually we see a seven-day mourning period uh, in the Bible, uh, King Saul, 1 Samuel 31 uh, they observed a seven-day mourning period for uh, King Saul. But in time, uh, we do see them observe a 30-day mourning period for like great and influential figures. Um, they mourn for Aaron for 30 days, uh, and that's in Numbers 20. But before we move on from this embalming thing, because I'm just like enthralled with it, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about it. So usually, and this is the most important part about this embalming, the person has to be dead. No. Um, <laughs> Usually, for Egyptians, they would have been embalmed by the priests of Osiris. This is their god of the underworld, Osiris. And so the priests would have embalmed the Egyptians. This type of embalming was very much a religious practice. It's a religious practice. It's not customary for physicians to embalm someone. But we have to take notice that Joseph commands the physicians to embalm his father. Joseph does this to ensure that this is not a pagan religious practice of magic and mysticism being performed by priests of Osiris, but a medical uh, practice being performed by physicians. Does everyone see the difference and why he would want to do that? All right, so let's pick up in verse 4. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him. My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonged to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. I know everyone has always wondered, why is that place called Abel Mizraim? 
So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returns to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So it tells us here, when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh asking permission to go bury his father. Um, there was a reason he had to wait until he was done mourning before he could even approach the household of Pharaoh. The mourning process for Egyptians consisted of abstaining from customary washing, bathing, um, avoiding wines and ointments, no essential oils, who could, can't even imagine, avoiding all luxury eating, covering the head with ashes, performing lamentations twice daily, usually accompanied by paid mourners, which I would like at my funeral, babe, paid mourners. <laughs> they would also allow their head hair and beards to grow, which for Egyptians, you know, they were very close shaven. So this is the opposite of their usual appearance. And so being unshaven and unwashed for an Egyptian, it was actually against the law to be in mourning and appear in public because you were so nasty looking, unshaven and unwashed. Have you ever just seen someone and just been like, you should not appear in public? You know, like I'm sure my kids say that to me every morning when I wake up. They're like, ah, um, they do. They're very rude about it. Mm. Um, so he's got to wait until the mourning period is over before he can even go and much less present himself to royalty, to Pharaoh, right? He would have been arrested. So he waits until the mourning period is over. He presents himself before Pharaoh. And notice that when he requests permission to go and bury his father, he also gives him assurance that he will come back. He says, I'm going to go bury my father, and then I will come back. At this point, the famine's over. But Joseph has proven that he's of great worth, right? Because he was appointed to lead them through the famine. He was put over Pharaoh's house and the entire land of Egypt. He's been over the land of Egypt for quite some time. So Pharaoh hasn't had to do anything and everything's been going really, really well. So Pharaoh does not want to let him go. He's not, he doesn't want him to take his whole household to the land that they came from and stay there and not return. Okay, he, so he needs assurance that, that Joseph will return. And in fact, some scholars believe that this large retinue that they send of chariots and horsemen and dignitaries has two different purposes. One, to honor Joseph and honor Joseph's father. And two, to ensure that Joseph returns, right? And this is a very large party. It says the only people they leave behind are the little ones and the flocks. And then when you add in all the Egyptian chariot and the horsemen, this is a huge group that could not be missed as they make this 200-mile journey to Canaan, um, to the cave of Machpelah that Abram had bought from Ephron the Hittite. And here in the Promised Land, we see, as I mentioned before, they observe a seven-day mourning period over their father, Jacob. And this seven-day mourning period that they observe is actually closely tied to a period of uncleanness. We see in Numbers 19, 11, it says, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. And then in Numbers 19, 19b, it says, Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes, and bathe, in wa bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. 
So this is why they observed that seven-day mourning period in Canaan. They most likely did not bury Jacob in the Egyptian coffin. They probably took him out and laid him um, beside uh, the other patriarchs. And they mourned their father, and they returned to Egypt as promised. And I'm going to pick up in 15, and I think, yeah, we'll just finish it out. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So let's begin this section by looking at verse 22, as we're going to come back and spend a little bit more time on 15 and through 21. So here we see the length of Joseph's life. It tells us he lived 110 years, seen through the third generation of Ephraim's children, and that Manasseh's children were also brought up on Joseph's knees. This often can mean that the children were adopted by the man as his own, when it says they came up on his knees. But here, specifically, brought up on Joseph's knees, refers to the fact that they all fell under his authority. They, uh, he was still head of the clan, as he was still the leader of his particular clan until his death. And when he dies, it says that he, that he tells his brothers that God will bring them out of the land to bring them to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first time we see the patriarchs listed together like that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's most likely he's not talking to all of his brothers as he was the ninth oldest. Um, it's likely that some of his brothers have already died. Um, and he tells them the same thing that his father told him, take my body back to the promised land. Just to give you a little, um, just to finish that story out, his body ends up staying in Egypt 144 years before Moses and the children of Israel take it with them when they leave Egypt. They will take his body um, with them, fulfilling the vow to Joseph. And they do this, if you don't believe me, in Exodus 13, 19. And his bones were buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. And this occurs after the death of Joshua. And you can read about that, all about that, in Joshua 24. Um, and so with the death of Joseph, the book of Genesis comes to a close. This book, 
the book of Genesis, this is important, is the seedbed of the entire Bible. And it is essential to the correct understanding of every part of it. It is essential. It is a seedbed. And so with the end of Genesis, we can now look at the central themes that run throughout, that we see continue throughout the Bible. Creation, the fall of man, God selecting a people unto himself, all leading up to the redemption of the entire human race, and in here the redemption of the people he had chosen for himself, but all leading up to the redemption of the entire human race through Jesus Christ. And and although this ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ isn't present in Genesis, we do see a foreshadowing of the Messiah um, through Joseph. Scholars like to say Joseph is a type of Christ. There, There are several figures in the Bible who are saviors that foreshadow Christ, and some of their traits tell us what the actual Messiah will be like. Um, And so they have a list, you know, scholars who are paid a lot of money go through and they make a list of of similarities between Joseph and Jesus, the things they had in common. Some of these are, yeah, I'll point them out. So one, uh, he was a shepherd. This is talking about Joseph. He was a shepherd of his father's sheep. His father loved him dearly, but he was hated by his brothers. He is sent by his father to his brothers, but they plot to harm him. They take his robes from him. He's sold for the price of a slave. He's tempted, falsely accused, bound in chains, placed with two other prisoners, the baker and the cupbearer, one who was saved and one who was lost, like the two thieves on the sides of Jesus. They were both exalted after their suffering. Both were 30 years old at the beginning of public recognition. They both wept. I thought that was reaching. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's that's true. They both wept. Um, They forgave those who wronged them. They saved their nation. One saved their nation, one saved the world. And what men did to hurt them, God used for good. In fact, what men did to hurt them ended up being the vehicle for the salvation of those men. So they have all this in common. So in Joseph, we see a foreshadowing of the Christ. We see a type. It's important to note that Joseph is not like the Messiah. Because you can get real twisted up, man. People are so twisted up. Like you could be like, oh, then Jesus is Joseph reincarnated. Like you can hear some pretty dumb things. Um, And you can read any dumb thing you want to read on the internet. But so I want to make a point that that is not what I'm saying. Okay? But we see... In Scripture, what you see in Scripture are patterns, the patterns of God. He has a way that he does things. He he has a way of choosing people, and he has a way of moving through them, okay? It's all tied together. And as we grow closer to God, um, we become more like him. As we grow closer to Jesus through his Holy Spirit, we become more like him. We develop traits that are like Jesus as we are more and more like him. And notice, as I said, that we become more like him through his Holy Spirit. This is the first person in the Bible, Joseph, where it says the Spirit was in him. Not with him, but in him. It says that. And so in Joseph's actions, we see what Jesus Christ will be like. Closeness to God reveals Jesus. 
So now that we've established that, let's look back to verse 15 to look at Joseph's actions and how they reflect Jesus. And verse 15 is after, when after his father dies, his brothers come and say, oh, by the way, uh, I know you're busy, um, but you probably didn't notice right before dad died, he said, hey, forgive your brothers, right? Make sure that you forgive your brothers. Um, <laughs> and it says that his brothers became fearful that Joseph would finally seek retribution, like now that his father was dead, like, like his father was the one holding Joseph back. With, with Joseph just had this hatred, and he was holding it back, and he's like, I really want to punish my brothers, but I love my dad, and so for his sake, I'm not going to do anything. And this is kind of how the brothers are starting to like, once they get together and start talking, man, it's just not good, right? It's just not good when they get together and start talking. All this fear, they come up with plans, and they never like, someone... Come on, come on and say, hey, guys, I feel like we've done this before, right? We started talking. We started planning. Like, let's just admit none of us are good planners, okay? It doesn't end up very well, right? So they said, hey, before dad died, he said to forgive us. And then they fall down on their faces before him um, saying, we're your slaves. And this is the fifth time, actually, that they fulfill that prophetic dream that Joseph had that kind of set all this into motion. Now, we don't know if Jacob really said that. He might have said that, but I don't think he did. I just Because we know these guys, right? They're pretty conniving. They're pretty conniving. They're always planning. They have their little stupid plans, right? And when they come and say, hey, when they say this to Joseph, what was his response? He weeps. He weeps. Why does he weep? Why does he cry? When they say this to him, was it because he really wanted to murder them? And now he has to rethink it because his father, who's like, no, I've just been waiting. I've come up with this thing called drawn and quartered. I wanted to try out. No, he, he's weeping because he's forgiven them. To him, he has forgiven them utterly and completely. And so many years have passed since he forgave them. In his mind, man, this relationship is restored. I, I thought our relationship was completely restored. I haven't thought about it at all. I haven't seen you in that light. The separation, I thought, was gone. I brought you close, and I forgave you. And now, I see that maybe for you it wasn't that way. That maybe... Like for them, they were thinking maybe he didn't really forgive us. When their father dies, their guilt just come rushing back and they start to think maybe he didn't really forgive us. Maybe it wasn't complete forgiveness. Maybe it wasn't forgiveness at all, but, but our father was protecting us. Maybe secretly he can't stand us. And the spirit of fear begins to take root that maybe, just maybe, I know he said we were forgiven. I know he acted like we were forgiven, but maybe, just maybe, we weren't really forgiven. Maybe we weren't really forgiven. To Joseph, it's in the past. He's not dwelling on it. He doesn't picture their wrongs when he looks at them. He doesn't see their wrongs when he looks at them. He sees his brothers. But from what they've seen on this earth, they cannot believe in a forgiveness that is that complete. 
And don't we do the same thing? Over and over and over. We, we repent of our sin, the sin that put him on the cross, and we're forgiven. We're like, thank you, Jesus, I'm forgiven. We even sing the songs, I'm forgiven. I'm set free, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his blood was shed to cover my sins. We're washed white as snow, right? In Psalm 103, it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thank you, Jesus, right? As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions, removed our iniquities. He, he doesn't see us according to our sin or repay us according to our iniquities. He removes our transgressions. But then we begin to doubt that his forgiveness could be so complete. How could, he, how could Jesus just forget about my sin when I cannot? And how can Jesus forgive me for what I've done when I can't even forget it, right? How many times lay awake at night and think of something you did in high school, in middle school, in college yesterday that you just regret, that you wish you'd go back and change, something you said that was mean, something that you did that was harsh, and we just cannot let go of it ourselves. And so it is just impossible sometimes for us to think that God could not see us that way. When we see ourselves that way, we can put on a pretty face. And it's funny because a lot of times Christians, we can go around, we can put on a pretty face and we can be like, I'm forgiven. You need to be forgiven like I'm forgiven. Any point with your thumb like this, it's the thing. You need to be forgiven like I'm forgiven. You need to be set free. You need to know the feeling I have. But then like secretly in our closets, we're like, ah, we're not always dwelling on it. But when we do, when we do another thing, we're like, man, again, again, I just keep messing up. And then and when we mess up again, the devil says, well, that's not the only thing you've done. You did this. You did that. You remember that? And we start hearing this voice, right? Do you really think, do you really think that he loves you? People respect you because they think that you're a man or a woman of God. They think you're somebody, but deep down, you know, you know you're not that person. And you know who else knows deep down? You know who knows your heart? Jesus. And so they might think, and they can tell you all day, God's got a plan for your life. But we both know that can't be true. Because they don't know who you really are. Like you know. Right? And we listen to that voice. You know who you are. You know what you've done. And we feel, we don't feel forgiven. And we begin to doubt the power of the blood of the Lamb. We begin to doubt the love of Jesus Christ. And Joseph, when he sees their hearts, 
And Joseph represents Jesus. When he sees their hearts, when he sees that they've been holding on to it, when he sees that his forgiveness has not loosed them, when he sees they are still covered in guilt, when he sees they are still thinking about it all this time, and that guilt has kept this separation between them, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. They were being held captive by lies. The lies of the enemy. They could not allow themselves to accept the complete freedom that had been granted to them. And Joseph, he's not angry with them. He's not angry. He's not like, he's not like you guys are so stupid. You guys are so frustrating. You guys, what an idiot. Ugh. It is so hard to deal with you. No, what did it say he did? It says he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He said, you, you still don't get it, do you? Come, come close. Let me explain this to you. You're forgiven. You're washed white as snow as far as the east is from the west. I don't look at you and see your iniquities. I look at you and I see my brothers whom I love. I don't see your wrongs. I see forgiveness. And that is Jesus' response to us. He says, I have removed your transgressions. I, by my power, by the power of my blood, I have removed your transgressions. I have blotted them out. I blotted them out. If you only knew the thoughts I have for you. It is sad for me to hear the thoughts that you have and the thoughts that are yours that you think are mine towards you. If only you knew the thoughts that I have for you. The other night um, at worship and prayer night, which is amazing, um, Brian Cheshire had a word. You probably not too happy I'm pointing you out, but I'm not going to take credit for it because it's your word. Um, and he said uh, that, that God gave him for the body, and it was a, an amazing word. And the word was that many of us are wrapped in chains. You know, we talk about being wrapped in chains. Many of us are just wrapped in chains. But there is no lock on those chains. There is nothing keeping those chains there except us holding on to them. We say, you're free. You're set free. Let go but I've earned these chains. But you're free. I, I, I've, I've, I've opened the lock. I've thrown away the key. Let them go. Let it go. Set the chains down. Drop the chains. And there are many of us, many Christians, who are in bondage, who could be free in a moment if we would just accept what's been done for us. There are many of us who have already, and I would say like if, if, you, if, you're, if you're in sin, if you've sinned, we know the drill. Repent and you're forgiven. And if you haven't repented, repent of your sin. But there are many of us who have repented and still have not accepted the forgiveness. Still do not walk in the freedom that was granted. We still hold on to the past. But Jesus wants us to see ourselves as he sees us. 
And what does he say? He says, I do not. I've blotted out your transgressions. I've removed your iniquities as far as the east is from the west. You are washed white as snow. You are my child, and I have plans for you. Yes, you. And I know, I know your heart. I know what you've done, but you are mine, and my sin covers all. Let the chains go. Let them drop. I have not put them on you. And it's the enemy lying to us, telling us that they're ours to bear. They're not ours to bear. The blood of the lamb has set us free. Amen. So let's, let's close our eyes. I'm, um, I'm going to invite um, some prayer people up. You know who you are. Um, and if, if some could go in the back, M-O-M, hit the back. Thanks. Um, and if anyone here is holding on to sin that you've been forgiven of, today I want to be released. Today we want to be released from that sin. I want you to be released. God wants you to be released. He wants you to let go of that sin, let go of that shame, let go of your past. Don't let it define who you are. Don't let it define who you will be. Don't let it think it disqualifies you for the blood of the lamb washes all. It makes white as snow. And that is how Jesus sees you. He died so that your sins might be forgiven. And this isn't a salvation sermon. This is for, and if you want to get saved, totally do it. But I'm just saying, like, this is for Christian. This is for people who have been walking with the Lord and holding on to our chains and not accepting the forgiveness that's been granted to us. Let's accept the forgiveness that's been granted to us. Let's walk in our freedom from this day forward. No looking back. Let's see ourselves as Jesus sees us. Let's stop denying the power of the cross. Let's stop denying the power of God. And let's begin to act like children of the Lamb, like children of the King. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.